Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. I want to talk to everyone about the importance of tradition and lineage and the importance of what it means to respect uh, the lineage and also what it means to have a teacher and, and what it means to have a guru within the yoga tradition. So... The first thing to understand is that this Ashtanga yoga method is not something I created or invented, and it's not something my teachers created or invented. There's a certain kind of sacredness, a certain kind of respect that the lineage carries with it, almost a weight, you could say, that it has uh, from the sheer fact of its survival for generations. And when we practice a traditional lineage, uh, it can be tempting to kind of come in and question, and, and questions are, are, are useful on some level if they lead us to greater understanding. But sometimes too much questioning uh, comes from the paradigm of disrespect. And it comes from the paradigm of not really understanding how valuable the gift that we have is. It's almost like we can think of the lineage-based practice as a, a sacred and cherished fam family heirloom that was passed down to you. And, and it gets passed down one generation to the next, one generation to the next. And while it may be useful to make some updates, uh, we have to understand that the kind of integrity and power and potency of the lineage is also contained in its original form, you know? Uh, and when we come in and try to recreate or deconstruct, or in some ways challenge, what we end up doing is we place our egos at a higher position than the sort of long history of the lineage. And there's a fine balance to walk between kind of the healthy questioning that leaves agency on the part of the student versus the kind of challenging, deconstructivist, canceling energy that could destroy what is valuable about our history, our past, our lineage. And this is something I encourage each of us to really reflect on and really understand, well, what is my role as a student? What is my role as a teacher? What is a teacher? What is a student? And what is a guru? And where do I fall within that vast spectrum? And even that aspect of questioning, that aspect, that type of questioning, that type of curiosity, that type of 
kind of in, inquisitive mind comes from the paradigm of assisting spiritual development and assisting the learning process. And when we're approaching our questions regarding the lineage from that paradigm, then we're coming from the paradigm of respect and we're coming from the paradigm of appreciation. We're coming from the paradigm of humility. That's really the sort of foundation of what it means to be a student. So sometimes I, I and, and, and perhaps something that, has been coming up as we, you know, live in the age where speaking truth to power is definitely something that we're encouraged to do. At the same time, the relationship between ourselves and our spiritual path is not necessarily our relationship between ourselves and large multinational corporations. So when we think about that, it's not like your spiritual teacher, if they're a true spiritual teacher, is holding the knowledge away from you with some insidious plot to make themselves better. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do think that there are some multinational corporations out there that definitely put maximization of profits over the health and benefit of everyone and everything else. And your spiritual guru should not be like that. If you have a spiritual teacher that you think is acting like that, they're probably not your spiritual teacher. They're probably trying to make some kind of empire out of spirituality, which is in itself a greater form of disrespect than, you know, uh, challenging or questioning. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to this question, let's take it down to its very basics. Can you be your own guru? Right. This is a question that kind of gets popped up. If you do a Google search right now for, you know, who is your guru or can I be, can you be your own guru? You will see a vast trove of articles and particularly, um, sort of contemporary spiritual articles that say you are your own guru. You don't need anyone else. You know what's best for you. Well, then if you search traditional yoga practice, then you'll see you absolutely need a guru. You need someone who's further along the path, who embodies the essence of the lineage. You can't do it on your own. There's no way you can do it on your own. You absolutely need a guru. So where do, how do we reconcile kind of this questioning, this, this question or this schism, this dichotomy, you could say, between the notion that you can be your own guru versus the notion that you absolutely need a guru on the spiritual path. And we have to ask, what is a guru? When we think about all of that. So let's start off with what is a guru? What is a yoga teacher? What is a yoga instructor? I think that's a good place to start off so we can understand who we're talking to, really, right? So uh, if we think about a yoga instructor, this would be someone that instructs according to a technique that they've learned, and they might not be able to adapt that technique to the student yet. So in this way, every single student learns the exact same thing, and the sort of learning stops there. And this is an instruction sort of like something that you could find written in a book, something that you could find as a diagram. If you look up like a primary series practice sheet, I think we even have them in the lobby, this would be an instruction manual, right? This is, you could think about instructing, just the level of instruction, kind of like if you read the manual to any object that you have at home, you know? Like if you get a new microwave, it comes with an instruction manual. But that instruction manual doesn't tell you how to fit that microwave into the nook in your kitchen then you need a specialist to come in and carve out that nook and figure out, okay, what do I need to do with my power grid in order to hook the microwave up so the microwave does not explode and catch on fire and do all sorts of bad things? What if I fit the microwave in, but I don't give it air around it, and then it explodes anyway, even if I have the right electric, electrical connection? You know, so things can happen. 
When you look only at the instruction manual, there's no room within that for specialization. Now, a lot of people who teach all styles of yoga, whether it's Ashtanga yoga, whether it's Vinyasa yoga, Yin yoga, any other style of yoga, start off as an instructor. And this is when people who are teaching yoga methodology can seem the most dogmatic. Everybody should do like this, period, end of story. Everybody should be like this. And you can find this in some of the very rigidly defined technical instructions or cueing instructions that are popular in sort of Western-influenced vinyasa classes, that it's only cued like this, and if it deviates from that, it's wrong. You can find this in the Ashtanga method, in not so much alignment cues, but how we do the asanas. You bind this pose, or you don't bind it, you don't move on. So there seem to be very defined limits like that. And this is when we're in the level of instruction. Again, think about the instruction manual, you know? Like, again, there's not a lot of deviation. It's not like, well, if you don't have the 220 electrical outlet, you can also do it like this. There's none of that in the instruction manual. It's just like, this is how it is. Then, when the instructor has enough experience, they can move into the level of what you could be, what you could be consulted, what you could be called a, a true yoga teacher. Someone who's able to sit with the vast knowledge of instructions and then be like a specialist who's going to come in and install the microwave specifically to your home or your apartment or wherever you live. And then you come in and feel like, oh, well, this microwave, so this, the instructions that go with this need to fit into this little nook and this is how we're going to do it. This is the environment that surrounds and the teacher is able to take that information and figure out how to adapt that information for the specific case that's in front of them. And at the same time, that teacher is going to look back at the instruction and make sure that whatever method fulfills the original purpose of that instruction. And that's very important because some people who start teaching, they forget, oh, I still need to fulfill that original intention. Then they get really interested in what is my unique contribution? What is my unique flair and how I'm going to do this? And then in the process of installing a microwave, then they put the water line got plugged into the microwave because they thought it was cool. And then the microwave is now a waterfall. And then that doesn't work so well if you want to heat up some coffee or something that's not so tasty any longer. Um, and then it probably will explode also since water and microwave probably eventually don't work so well. Um, I'm not actually so much into home remodeling, um, but uh, I have had a situation where our microwave has exploded a couple of times, and uh, we have a little weird wiring thing happening in our kitchen, so we actually need the specialist guy to come in, and he's, he's just a work in progress. Um, it hasn't gotten fixed yet. Right? So, so anyhow, when you have that specialist come in, they're truly teaching. They take this original instruction, keep remembering, look, these people, they want a microwave. They want the capacity of a microwave. What was that original capacity? And what do I have to work with here? Oh, I got old wiring from 1936 plus, uh, you know, some wood frame that's not really up to code. And then how am I going to click that into this microwave from 2022 that was refurbished? And we're going to try to stick that all together and make it produce warm stuff, all right? without explosions or waterfalls. So the true teacher can do that with the student. Here's this method, whatever method it is that that teacher has learned, this instruction, here is the student. How now can we make that meet in such a way so that the original intention is communicated and well-received and is something that both achieves the original intention, honors the student, honors the lineage, and is safe and effective? Not only for the physical body, but more importantly, for the spiritual journey. Sometimes, you know, our physical bodies get sore, get tired, get injured. And that 
teacher has to create the safe space for the spiritual journey to continue despite inevitable pitfalls that arise along the way. So now we understand the vast majority of people that we'll come into contact with will be yoga instructors and yoga teachers. If you meet someone who's instructing you in yoga and they seem really, really rigid about it has to be like this, there's no other way that it can be done, there's usually one of two things that are going on. Either they're speaking to a giant group and then it's very difficult to make room when they're speaking to a giant group for specific uh, teacher-student um, adaptations. Or they're newer to the teaching methodology or they've gotten stuck in that instructor level where the dogma begins to be more important than the teaching. It usually takes lots of experience for someone to move from the instructor level to the teacher level. Usually it takes lots of experience. And I've found that people who are able to truly teach also maintain their role as a student. What can often happen is that the teacher who loses their connection to their teacher usually ends up somehow lost on the edges at some moment. I've experienced it myself when I haven't gone back to India to practice with my teachers. Some years go by, some years go by. I start to lose my own inspiration. I feel like, you know, oh, this doesn't matter anymore. I've kind of, it's almost like the, the instruction manual started to get faded because it was, you know, I left out in the sun too long. And then suddenly there were all these key components that I no longer really think are important anymore. Then I start inserting things of my own in there that I think, well, this is really important. And then for me, I go back to India, I study with my teacher, and then suddenly the manual is clear again. Oh, I see. I connected the red wire to the blue one. I thought it was pretty, but I can see it's not effective. Let's go back and connect the red wire to the red wire and the blue wire to the blue wire so we have a functioning electrical grid in the home or wherever we are, right? So this is very important for me. I've noticed that teachers that don't reconnect with their teacher at some moment, they miss something somewhere along the way. There are, of course, a few instances where it can be difficult to reconnect with your teacher. If your teacher passes away, for example, you know, and you don't really have another teacher. So my teacher, Shadaji, his grandfather was his teacher and after Shadaji passed away, he went through a very big period of, well, where do I find my teacher? Where do I find that? And he's holding true in an amazing way to the lineage for all of our benefit so that we can come in and we can take benefit of the practice. And the community can also support you in that way. So now we think about instructor. We think about teacher. Now we think about guru. What is a guru, right? So if a teacher is someone who's present with you as a student, present with the student, and is able to adapt the practice, what is a guru? Well, it's said that the guru is not operating on the same level as our logical minds. It's said that the guru, if we translate, so some of the, some of the translations of, of guru are uh, uh, the dispeller of darkness. So someone whose presence, not by what they say, what they say should be useful, but not so much by what they say, but by who they are, removes the darkness from your path. The guru is someone who has a heaviness about them, not so much like seriousness and heaviness, but what's meant by heaviness is like a sort of um, almost like a library of experience, knowledge, and wisdom. And it's the idea that it's a fullness that that individual brings, a kind of wholeness that an individual brings, a kind of you know, density of spiritual vibration that that individual can bring. And strangely enough, it's said that while the guru may give instruction, the real purpose of the guru is to hold the space 
for the student to practice. And then we start to think, well, what does that mean? You know, I don't understand. Well, I've experienced that numerous times um, when, uh, when Chatterjee's grandfather was in the room, then he didn't need to talk to me. He didn't need to give me instructions, but there was something that happened and shifted and changed when he was present in the room. And almost like, you know, there's an energy, there's something that's hard to understand, some shift that happens, some kind of atmosphere that's created. And then, you know, things work in a different way. And your mind, for at least my mind, couldn't grasp that logically. It was like, well, I don't understand. I did the worst I've ever done, but it felt that this was the deepest practice I ever did. And then there, you know, there's this kind of feeling of, of a powerful presence, you know, that, that is described as the feeling of turning on a light in the room of darkness, with dispeller of darkness. Someone whose presence has the power to shift something within the community, within anyone who's, um, who's present to them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of think about the guru as someone who actually, while they may give instruction, while they may teach, the, the, their purpose and their presence their way of operating is not necessarily falling within the paradigm of like a university type of teaching. Um, they, they're not necessarily falling within the paradigm always of friendship either. And, and this is something hard to understand. You know, there's lots of stories of many gurus within the Indian tradition, also within the Tibetan tradition that, and other Buddhist traditions as well, that the, the guru would sit and not say anything, you know, just sit there and not say anything. And then people would have some sort of experience and everyone's experience would be different. And there would, of course, be people who had no experience and they would think this is ridiculous. We sit here, he says nothing, you know. There's a, 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 a really interesting story from, um, ooh, I think it's from Ramdas who tells that when he was with his guru, that the guru would sit there in silence for a long period of time. And then he would reach over to a plate of bananas and he would throw bananas at the people who were there and, or fruits of those bananas. It might also be oranges, uh, but then not everybody got an orange or a piece of fruit. So it became like a thing. I got an orange today, you know? Oh, I got a banana today. I didn't get anything today, you know? And then, it's also kind of strange. You think, oh, he's playing psychological games, right? But is he or is he not? We don't know in this particular case. And, and, and then, you know, the, his own questioning was, I don't even understand what I'm benefiting or how I'm benefiting from this. I sit there in this man's presence. Occasionally he throws fruits. He doesn't say anything. And then we sing some chants. He feeds us lunch and everybody falls asleep after lunch. And then we go home. I don't understand, you know? Um, and we think about this as, well, gosh, have I ever met someone who is a guru? I don't know, you know? We have to answer that question, I don't know, you know? So we consider someone whose spiritual presence has the power to transform us, a guru. And this is something that everyone on the path of yoga, everyone, we are trying to evolve ourselves to the point where we awaken that presence within ourselves. But to have met someone who is a guru you would know because your life will have changed from that meeting. Is that person perfect? Probably not. You can, in fact, be someone who is a guru but is not fully liberated or in that final state of kind of ultimate enlightenment. In other words, you can be a guru and be human and flawed and make mistakes also. But the idea is that there is some presence yet still around that individual who, that has the power 
to sort of light the spark of the spiritual path within those who are around them. Mm -hmm. Does that mean they're perfect? Not yet. You know, the only perfection in our tradition is that perfection of what we call the nirbija samadhi, which is that level of samadhi, which is that, which is without any seed of any more karma or without the seed of any more samskaras, these old patterns that tie us back into incarnation. How serious is the traditional uh, definition of the guru? Uh, very serious. <coughs> I'll tell you why it's extremely serious is because when the guru in times past of India, so in India's ancient past, thousands of years ago, when someone was a guru and that guru said, yes, you can be my student, that was a sacred vow between teacher and student. How sacred was the vow? Well, it wasn't taken lightly because in both the, in, in, in the yogic tradition, there is a belief in reincarnation, which means this is not the only life we live, that our human, that the death of the physical body is not the end, but that our spirit will continue and come back to the planet and continue whatever we've been working on um, until we reach that nirbija samadhi state. Unless that individual is a guru, then every relationship that that guru has said to a student, yes, you will be my student. This is the traditional yogic definition of a spiritual guru. That by saying yes, the guru says, I will come back for you over and over again until you until the guru that is within you is awakened. So it's serious business, you know? It's not to be taken lightly, especially if, you, if reincarnation is your belief. You could be committing yourself to thousands of incarnations. You know, this student, what are they doing? You know, oh, I gave them this teaching. What are they doing? Eating McDonald's. Why? You know, oh, it tastes good. I like it. I like ketchup. Okay. Are you going to do any practice? I don't know. Now they have impossible burger, you know? So then we think, oh no, I've lost the student. Maybe the whole life spent McDonald's. I'm just using it as an analogy. And how many problems with McDonald's? I ate a lot of it as a kid. Um, so then maybe that's my only problem with it. Uh, so then that teacher says, oh, the whole lifetime wasted. McDonald's, come back. The guru also has to come back. Okay, another lifetime in McDonald's. Are we going to work? Oh, look, you're ready. Wonderful. Half lifetime. Then they went back to McDonald's. They thought, well, at least we got half a lifetime. We still have to come back. How many thousands of incarnations? That sacred bond by the guru cannot be broken according to the traditional path. It's like the Bodhisattva vow from the Buddhist teaching that says, I will come back until all beings are enlightened. Except these are very specific personal commitments, vows that are made between the teacher and student. This is why it's heavy. This is why you used to have to prove yourself as a student before the guru would take you into, um, you know, the community around the guru or as a student. So this is why in our tradition, we hear these stories of very rarely did Patabi Joyce say no to someone, but once in a while, I heard him say no to people. It was never really about that they didn't follow the rules, something like that. For example, one time, I was sitting waiting to do pranam, which is after practice. We would wait at the, you know, in the shala to say thanks to our teacher, to Patabi Joyce. Now we wait to say thanks to Sharaji, although slightly differently. And um, we'd wait. Somehow he didn't really understand people. It would take a long time. So then he would walk out. You think, oh, great. I brought flowers. I'm going to do pranam. No, there's a new person. He ignores you. He looks at the new person. Hey, where you are new. And the person would say, yes, I'm new. First question used to be, because you used to have to write a letter to get in, he would say, you wrote the letter? And then I've heard once or twice the students say, yes, I wrote the letter. 
And then most of the time he would say, okay, registration, come tomorrow, whatever time, take registration. Once in a while, he would ask a second question. One second question I heard him ask one time was, you have a teacher? And then the students started to say, yes, I have a teacher, started to talk about their teacher, this and that. And he looked at them and said, you go back to your teacher. <laughs> and then the look of shock, but I just came to India and I come from Europe and I traveled over here and my, how can I, but what else am I going to do now? In this little city, if you don't take me, you said you have teacher, you go back to your teacher, no problem, thank you very much, and turned around and um, looked at the students. You take Pranam now, okay, thank you. And then the student, the horror look on the face, but he didn't give them any more attention. And that was that, you know? Occasionally he would say no, you know? I don't know if he was thinking of that bond, you know? But I mean, I can tell you that in moments of very serious lack of inspiration in my life, If I haven't been able to go back to India, I still think of him. And sometimes he appears to me in a dream, which happened to me before I went to India for the first time. And so he's still, somehow there's still some connection there for me. And um, I hope if I have to come back that, you know, somehow I would continue the work that I've started, right? Rather than go to McDonald's, um, you know, but you never know. <laughs> so we think about these bonds as something different. Have we ever met a guru, you know? We would know because our life in some way will have changed. More likely we have met an instructor, more likely we have met a really qualified, excellent teacher. Still something to hold on to, still someone to be present with, still something to value and respect. So let's compare that paradigm to our more contemporary new age paradigm, you know, our sort of spiritual oriented paradigm, which is everybody can be their own guru. You know best for yourself, you are your guru, right? Some people say that the word guru can be broken down into G-U-R-U, which, yes, you're spelling. Congratulations, it's not a spelling bee, but G comma, like G-U-R-U, right? You understand? It's a really bad pun, like extremely horrible, terrible, even worthy of being in one of those bad pun jokes, absolutely horrible. But nevertheless, it ties into you're your own guru. You know best for yourself. What you think is right for you. I have delved very deeply into that type of spirituality also. I've been part of a community where the basic teaching was, you know best for yourself, have whatever you're attracted to. And, on, and I will say on some very, very deep level, there's truth to that. In other words, let's take it as a mirror image to the deeper, more ancient teachings, the wisdom teachings of the East, which come from the teaching of the Buddha, as well as the Vedic tradition, including yoga. All of these paradigm of the ancient wisdom teachings of the East take for granted that the seed of awakening is alive within every being. So there's a Buddha nature within you, according to the Buddhist teachings. There is God within each of us, according to the Sanatana Dharma. There is the seed of divinity within every, every living being and every holographic imprint of the entire universe. There is no separation within those traditions. So all of the teaching essentially rests upon you have the capacity to wake up. You are a Buddha waiting to awaken. So that is already taken for granted within the wisdom teachings of the East. And all of the techniques are there to awaken that Buddha within you, to awaken that spark of divinity within you. So now if we take that into the contemporary spiritual teachings, have whatever you want. What mind are you operating from when you say your desire, right? What level of thinking are you operating from? Is the Buddha within you 
saying, this is right for me? Or is all of your past programming and conditioning, the conditioned mind filled with biases, unconscious proclivities, unconscious desires, which may or may not be for the benefit of the spiritual journey, is that part of you saying, I want that? Or is the Buddha within you saying, I want that? And how can you expect to know the difference? Right? So sure, absolutely. There is some part of us that can be our own guru when we're quiet enough and we're calm enough and we're listening underneath our thoughts and we're tapping into that, you know, spark of divinity within ourselves. When that still small voice speaks from our heart and we listen, then we can be our own gurus. How many of us do that moment to moment? You wake up in the morning and you're like, hold on, let me check in. No, we're just, we wake up and we're like making things and running here and running there. We, we have a little thing that comes up, but we don't listen. You know, we're in rebellion against what is rising up from within ourselves. And in that place, we need help. You know, we need a technique. We need a teacher to say, hey, you know what? You know, sometimes what we think is what's good for us is actually just the ego saying, I want. And it strengthens the ego instead of, you know, whittling away the ego. So while there, I genuinely believe there is truth to, at some level, we can be our own guru. At some level, we can be our own guide. I think many of, many of the contemporary teachings of spirituality jump the gun in sort of empowering people to think that really before they've put in the sincere work of what it takes to actually develop a practice, a sadhana of deep listening. You know, what does it take to get to the place where what's arising through you is not rooted in a past karma, in a past samskara, in a reaction to something that would lead us into future cycles of suffering. Only when we are pure enough and clear enough in our thinking, in our being, in our feeling, can we expect that which is arising within us to be from that source of our Buddha nature. And this is the you know, the interesting thing that, 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 that we have to understand, the schism of the patterning that's there, our reaction to the patterning. And yet, here's the, one of the most liberating teachings that come from the teaching of yoga and the teaching of the Buddha, is that even though this schism exists, even though we have this patterning that we're up against, even though there are karmas we are working with and that are fructifying in our life, that are bearing their seeds of suffering, even though there are samskaras, personal individual thoughts, behaviors, which have been destructive to us and to others, thoughts which we've seeped into us through the collective consciousness, which may be towards our benefit, which may not be towards our benefit, even though all of that's happening, there is yet still a truth within us that is constantly seeking to the light, constantly seeking for our spiritual awareness. And that's what the entire teaching of yoga and meditation and the wisdom traditions of the East seek to highlight and bring out. That say, essentially, look, even when you're struggling and you're suffering, there's yet still you that yearns for the light. Even when you go off the path and go towards McDonald's, there's still something in you that knows and let's seek to cultivate that over and over and over again. So that's kind of the antidote to what usually comes up when you are your own guru, is that you are also responsible for everything. And then there comes to be this concept of new age guilt. You know, for example, like 
I tripped and sprained my ankle. Did I attract that to myself? Am I of low vibration, so I'm injuring myself? And then we get like guilty about that. You know, we have like new age guilt or you get sick and you're like, ooh, I guess I've attracted sickness to myself. Or you're not, you know, you're not, you're not making as much money as you want. You're like, oh no, I have scarcity energy. I need to vibrate in abundance and shift to a new dimension and whatever. And, you know, like you can tie yourself up into a knot about that and never get out of it. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm stuck in a bad vibration. Well, maybe you were, maybe you weren't, but now you're thinking it. So now you really are because you're stressing out about what weird stuff that probably could just you could put aside and just be like a happier person in the moment. Um, So if we go back to the teaching of the yoga and the spiritual path, we essentially say whenever and wherever we go along the path. It's not going to be one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. We're always going to be stumbling and falling. And this, again, is why the teaching of yoga, the teaching of Buddha, essentially say we need a teacher. Because when we stumble and when we fall, we need someone who can lift us up. Not so that they can be glorified, but so that we can never lose sight of the light within ourselves. It's very important to think about it like that. Not so that they can have our power but we need someone that's strong enough to lift us up when we can't lift ourselves up. We need someone whose light is strong enough that can shine enough light on our path so we have the confidence to take the next step. Not so we can be thankful and in their debt forever, but so that we can take that next step and believe in ourselves to take another next step. You know, the best teaching that we can have on the path is someone whose help and someone whose support we are not even aware of. Someone who, by the mere fact of how they show up for us, whether that's physically assisting us or whether that's something that their presence does for us or something they say to us, creates a bridge for us to think, I can do this myself. Maybe we don't even realize how that individual has been quietly helping us go up a little higher, lift up a little bit more, just try a little bit harder day after day, day after day. And then we realize, oh, suddenly I can do this. And we will only realize years later, in that moment, they carried me. In that moment, they lifted me up a little higher. In that moment, they helped me go a little bit deeper. And I didn't realize it until now. And then we have Thanksgiving. You know, we have true gratitude and appreciation, but not worship of a false idol or putting on a pedestal you know, a false pedestal of perfection, an individual who's just really helped us find ourselves, come back to ourselves. And so in this way, again, we think about the traditional teaching and we think about, you know, what type of individual we're interacting with and, and, and where we are on our paths. And, and, and we just constantly use the tradition as a mirror to look within. Um, I'll say one last thing and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche comes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He said that the, the role of the guru is very difficult because sometimes the guru has to provide challenge to the, the individual who's present. And providing challenge means sitting with the discomfort of the student. And so when we think about providing challenge, he used, he was kind of known to be a little bit the, uh, um, controversial, you could say. Um, and he would do things that would challenge people's notions of what a spiritual guru is. So he did, I, I never saw this, but I, I, I read about it, that he would, you know, arrive to give a talk and then he would light a cigarette. 
just to bother people, you know, not because he smoked, but he would just do it to just irritate the people, you know? And so then he would like drink a lot of coffee and then people would be like, oh, that's not spiritual. You need to not drink coffee and not smoke cigarettes. And then at some moment he said that the purpose of a guru is to insult <laughs> the people around him. <laughs> and the idea being that, okay, so he, he, he took on this role of challenge and he took on this role of, of, of kind of really uh, being, you know, controversial in many ways. And was it effective? Was it not effective? Again, I never had the opportunity to meet him. There are many of, of these sort of uh, controversial figures in the, you know, in the history of the Guru Shisha tradition. And again, what we have to think about is, you know, was the experience something that defied the bounds of logic or was the experience someone who was not a guru, who was just power hungry and actually created harm in the community? So if we think, again, we need to use our minds and think about it, but the idea being that a true guru will always empower you to find that light within yourself so that 20, 30 years down the road, you won't be um, kind of worshiping at the temple of a false idol, but you'll be stronger and you'll be further on your path to coming to self-realization, which is really what that teaching, the wisdom traditions of the East, seek to cultivate, to awaken the Buddha within yourself, to awaken the light within yourself. So it grows stronger and stronger and stronger with the humility to understand, look, I'm going to need a little help here and there, you know? So with that, I'd like to open it up to any questions. And I said I would take time to answer any practical questions also that came up about the practice. So if there are any practical questions or unclarities about how you should do like primary series or whether you should do second series or whether you should try to do handstands in the middle of the room or anything like that, please uh, feel welcome to ask. Also, any other questions too, but please make sure that any practical questions get answered. Yeah, I feel like um, I've heard it said that when the students are ready, then that's when the guru appears. Mm -hmm. um, if that's true, then what can the student do to make themselves ready? That is a super good question. And I think that, um, you know, there are a couple of things that define spiritual readiness. So sometimes when we have an intellectual longing for something, and I'm not saying that that's where you're coming from, but sometimes we think we want something, but, we, but that longing hasn't penetrated into our hearts, then what we can do to prepare ourselves in every level is take a look at what are the foundations of spiritual readiness traditionally. The first and most fundamental foundation of spiritual readiness is the direct experience of suffering, suffering to such a degree that your desire for a way out is real and suffering to such a degree that we realize there is no permanent happiness to be found in the temporary arising and passing of what we call the field of mind and matter, meaning I can chase pleasure forever uh, in this sensation, this experience, and it will never last. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy experience, but the lived experience of the only truth that exists in this material world is that sooner or later, everything disintegrates. That penetrative teaching also usually comes with, so teach me, let me find the way out. Have you read the Bhagavad Gita? Read the Gita again from the paradigm of there's, there's, oh, there's, um, 
Well, if you would start with the, you know, you could start with the Winthrop, Winthrop Sargent version, which is very academic, but I'd like you to, to, if you read it again, pay very careful attention to the despondency of Arjuna, because that's the answer to your question. Um, and Arjuna in this moment is preparing himself to receive the teaching of yoga directly from Krishna, right? So there's, some, there's this place in the Gita where the despondency of Arjuna, where Arjuna realizes the you know, the great despair of the cost of living, you could say. Look, I will be victorious, but the cost of my victory will be this harm and this harm and this harm and this harm. Look, I will be victorious, but I have, the cost of it is too much. And he fights with Krishna for a little bit. And he says, Krishna, look, like, I can't, I, 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 oh, this is terrible. You know, this is the life that I'm supposed to live. Everything that I've dreamed of and everything that I've stood for, it's all going to pass away. I'm in absolute despair. He sort of like argues with him for a little bit. Then there's a very important thing that's a shift that comes in Arjuna. After he argues and complains and says, Krishna, this is a raw deal. You know, you want me to kill my archery teacher. So to give that a little bit of background, the archery is also considered a Guru Shisha tradition in the ancient times of India. So it's said that the archery student is allowed to shoot an arrow that should land something like not too far from the Guru's feet. Right, And then in this vision of the great battle that's shown in the Gita, uh, Arjuna sees he will kill his archery teacher. And then he says to Krishna, like, absolutely not. Like, I can't do this. This is the cost of victory. Absolutely not. I'm not cut out for this. This is horrible. I see the cost. I'm in absolute despair. Absolutely just arguing, 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 arguing. And then he says to Krishna, I will not fight. And he becomes silent. And it's the silence that allows Krishna to teach. So we think of that as that's the moment of readiness when the suffering and the realization of the suffering has penetrated to such a degree so that there is emptiness. And it's the emptiness that's the vacuum that sort of draws the teaching. And so we can think about it. How can I become Arjuna in that moment? How can I let the suffering penetrate so deeply within me so that there's nothing left and then I can empty my cup and be a vacuum. It's the silence. And that's a very overlooked moment in the Gita, but it is that critical moment of, and he became silent. And it's the moment of silence that allows Krishna to come in and pour himself into Arjuna. You know, and what Krishna says next is not really like happy news for Arjuna. So this is also like sometimes the teaching can be very, very difficult, you know. So the next thing Krishna starts saying is, get up, Arjuna. You are, this, this weakness is below you. I'm going to build you up, right? But, you know, a little bit like, not like, hey, buddy, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's more like, stop complaining and do your practice, <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, and uh, but it's pretty intense what he says next. I mean, and it's sort of like biblical, what he starts to say next, you know, like, should you fail to complete this task, then a fate worse than death will befall you. And you think like, okay, I'll practice. I promise I show up tomorrow. It's totally good. What do you, Sorry, Namaskar, got it. Okay, a fate worse than death. I totally understand. I, um, what could that possibly be? No, don't tell me. I'll just practice. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but also like the Gita is about biblical proportions. At some moment, you know, like Arjuna says, okay, teacher, who are you? Show me who you really are. And then Krishna opens up his, it's a beautiful chapter in the Gita where Krishna opens up his mouth and shows him the universe. And then like Arjuna is like, wait, 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 can you go back to the human form? This is really overwhelming. I can't really be one with the universe right now. And he's like, okay, I'll come back and 
Hare Krishna for you. Maybe so. Yeah. So, so the whole, I mean, the whole Gita is about essentially how to, how to get the teaching to control the chariot so that we can hear that voice within, you know, did it happen for Arjuna right then? We don't know, but uh, it's sort of like in that moment of the Gita, maybe not, but in the battle that then happens in the life he lived, it definitely started to happen more, you know, where he's applying the teaching in real life. Make sense? Okay. Okay. One more question. Sure. You opened smoking not speaking about like respecting the tradition, which is easy for me. It's probably not as easy for other people, but um, you know, on social media things, you see a lot of a lot of people challenging Ashtanga tradition these days, and people who are close to close mm-hmm. to you. So, how do you, you know, people who are maybe difficult or you know, it's kind of hard to grasp? I see there's a friendly Ashtanga class here. You know, that didn't happen on the beach at the old school one where I. You know, so yeah. it's harder for people to, yeah, when I was on the beach, my source class was full at 6 a.m. You couldn't find a spot sometimes. Yeah. Here at 6 a.m. is not as full, obviously, it's a bigger room, but, uh, you know, I used to practice with Patrick back in the day on the beach. Yeah. You could not find a spot sometimes. Yeah. So, do you think that makes it harder for us, this community, if you will, or how do you... No, it's a really good question, and I think that... um some people are scared sometimes. Yeah. It's how serious it is, and I speak very highly of it. I consider myself a teacher myself as a jewel. But yeah. some people, it's very difficult to stick around. Absolutely. Some media presence doesn't make it easier. That's why I brought that up. It's, it's a lot of challenge. Like yeah. You spoke about the challenge of the tradition. No, absolutely. You're totally right. And, and I think that, um, you know, there is, I, I, I almost feel like there's like a crisis in the Ashtanga tradition, you know? So it's like there's people that have kind of experienced a little bit of the lineage and then for whatever reason, various reasons, they've kind of been pushed to a place where personally they're now against the lineage. And what I often find, strangely enough, and it's not only here in Miami, it's all over, it's actually quite, quite all over the United States, um, North America even, uh, I, I've found that usually what can happen is that those individuals who are, if we go back to the, 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 the sort of talk I gave in the beginning about instructor, teacher, guru, those individuals who are the most adamant in the instructor stage, they're super enthusiastic in the instructor stage. You know, they're like, absolutely, this is the way, there's no other way, this is how it is, this is the way, this, only this way, this is the instruction, everybody do like this, do it 15 times, or it's not good enough, this kind of thing. Then at some moment, it breaks. So they were so enthusiastic about that, and then they flipped, and now they hate it. You know, it's like I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. They hate it, and that high and that low, that extreme is what we're trying to balance in the practice. But they didn't stay with the practice. They went from the high, and then they're in the low, or they were in the low, and they went to that whatever it is. They went to the extremes, and then there's this conflict that's unresolved within them. And unfortunately, because of the world that we live in right now there's sort of the ability to take our conflict and air it out publicly. And guess what? People are in conflict. And when people are in conflict, I kind of feel like it's, how easy is it to jump on the bandwagon of complaint? You know, it's so familiar. It's so easy. Someone's like, oh, this doesn't work for me. Yeah, of course not. It's horrible. It's like so easy to complain. Look, the weather's terrible today. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, we could complain about today. It's a beautiful day. Someone says, too hot. 
he's so hot here. And like, it's so hot, you know? And then like, it's cold. Oh, it's so cold. I want it to wear hot. Now it's hot. I want it to be cold. And then people complain about the tradition in the same way. Oh, I want these asanas. Teach it to me. Teach it to me. Teach it to me. Okay, I'll teach it to you. Ow, they hurt. I don't want them anymore. This practice is bad. And so there, it's irresolution. And then we broadcast that irresolution. I think it's not an Ashtanga problem, if I'm being totally honest. I think it's like a crisis of our current state of affairs in our collective society is that we're, we get, we're getting stuck in these ruts of irresolution. And rather than sticking with something to find resolution, we're creating more conflicts and more conflicts and more conflicts. And I'm not sure what the way out is. I know for myself that when I stay with the path and I stay with the tradition, whatever irresolution is within me works itself out more and more, more and more. So I feel so horrible for those people who were so devoted to the practice and are now so against it. To be honest with you, I include them in my metta practice. I, have a, I sit Vipassana practice and I, I often include them in my metta practice. May their conflict be resolved. May they find peace. May they come back to the path. May they not be in a path of delusion. May they awaken. You know, I genuinely include them in my metta practice. I don't know what their path is for them. I genuinely hope they find their way back to some resolution because you can see they're not resolved about it. And I feel like this is, again, the gravity and the seriousness of understanding, wow, I have this, you know, this, this, this sacred heirloom that's been passed to me. Am I going to be in alignment with it? Am I going to be in rebellion against it? Am I going to start a war over this? Or am I going to embrace this? And again, you know, I also feel that it's challenging. It's really difficult. You know, if we think about what Jogyam Trigpa Rinpoche said, it's like you're not going to deliver to people what they want. You know, what do people want? You know, again, if we're talking to that introductory level of what people want, what do you want? You ask the ego, what does it want? What does it want? I didn't want to get up this morning at 4 a.m. and do my practice before teaching. I didn't want that. You know what I wanted to do? Sleep. I like sleep. And I also like waffles, to be honest with you. I would have preferred to sleep in and have someone bring waffles to my bed so I didn't have to get out of the bed. That's what I would prefer. So if we asked me, well, what are you attracted to this morning? I would have said, I'd like to sleep in till about nine and have someone come with some nice vegan waffles with a little bit of powdered sugar and some caramelized bananas. That would have been ideal for me. I didn't want to get up this morning. Instead, I woke up at 4 a.m. I drank tea in the darkness. I went upstairs. We have house guests that are very lovable and very loud. So then I went upstairs. My husband is asleep in the bed in the darkness. I put on noise-canceling headphones and I light a candle so it's not, not going to disturb anyone and I'm doing my meditation. Wonderful meditation. And then I get on my mat, still in the darkness. The husband woke up. He's doing something, doing this practice. Do I want to do this? No, to be honest with you. Do I do it? Yes, because I understand the benefit of this. So are we going to be mature and understand how to, how to find discipline and dedication? You know, this is a responsibility that each of us must find. And I, I don't, and I think it's true. It's not what everybody wants in the first go. But what I hope for is that sooner or later, we realize that sleeping in and waffles over and over again, meaning like just taking what we want and thinking that, you know, that that first impulse of our reaction is the right path. I have that myself all the time. Like I said, I didn't want to do it, but I did it anyway. And then ultimately I feel benefit from it. So I keep doing it, the practice. 
And then I genuinely can only hope that every individual who is listening to the voice of delusion, myself included, when that comes up, that's whatever it takes to break the delusion and step back on the path that happens. And all I can trust, Shadaji says this all the time too, that we have to trust the potency of the lineage. There may be highs, there may be lows. Suddenly there's a lot of people that like it. Then nobody likes it for a little while. If you're true to the lineage, you trust that soon the tide will change. And again, people will come if the practice is good. But nevertheless, if you're the true, if you hold the lineage truly, you're going to stay through the highs and the lows with the recognition that it's not the numbers that matter, that it's the quality of the presence that matters. And that sooner or later, even if you only make a difference in one person's life, it has to be worth it. You know, Atabi Joyce always used to say, I need one student to be a teacher. And so sometimes all the students leave. They get mad at the teacher for whatever reason. I'll leave. Oh, I'm mad at you. I'll leave. And then sooner or later, those ones who are meant to come back, they come back. Otherwise, new students come. So I'll share with you one other one story that just came up in my mind that, Patabi jo- that happened with Patabi Joyce. There was a man who was a leper who knocked on Patabi Joyce's door. He had a very small class happening at the time of a few other Brahmins who were in the caste that he's in, in or was in in India. They were practicing all Brahmins doing their yoga, which was the Brahmanical tradition. Then this guy came. He's a he's not only was he a leper, like he had leprosy. Um, horrible illness in the body, but he was also an untouchable. So he was of the lowest caste that is relegated to really inhumane tasks. And it's a big human rights issue actually within India, which we can leave that discussion for another day. Um, But anyhow, this man came up and knocked on Patabi Joyce's door and said, look, I heard you're a yoga guru and you can help me. Please help me. I will do anything. I want to be your student. And Patabi Joyce said, no problem. Come tomorrow, 6 a.m. The dude shows up, 6 a.m., all of the other students make a big protest. They stage a giant protest. Look, this is not acceptable. We are Brahmins. We do not go with untouchables. Absolutely, under no circumstances, this is wrong. You're breaking the Brahmanical tradition. But Tavi Joy said, go. All of you leave. This man is the one in need of help. You all leave. He sent them away. Fine, we leave. Absolutely, we don't care. They left. Who knows what they did. One year goes by. The leper guy is getting better. Suddenly, he can stand up straight. Suddenly, his skin is doing better. Patabi Joyce did a whole thing with him, not only teaching him asanas, changed his life, changed his diet, changed all sorts of things about him. The guy was a good student, did everything he said. A year later, he's dramatically better. Guess what? Mysore is a small, it's like a town. It's not like Miami. You're going to run into the people. So the, these other students, these ex-students, who were super negative about Patabi Joyce, oh, this man breaking Brahmanical tradition, talking around the town about how terrible he is, right? Now see this guy who used to be bent over and we're like, maybe we go back. So they came back. Oh, can we come back? What did he say? Sure, 6 a.m. tomorrow, you come back, no problem, you know? And so I really hope that the potency of the lineage sooner or later, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, if it's good, then sooner or later, the efficacy of the lineage will attract those who are meant to come back those who fall off the path, we can only pray, we can only send the metta that sooner or later their irresolution turns to resolution, their darkness turns to the light, their delusion, their disillusionment turns to peace and acceptance. It can't interfere with their journey, you know? Very difficult to sit with that. Very difficult. I, I can tell you firsthand, it's very difficult to sit with a student that you have loved and poured your heart and soul into 
come to you and say, you are terrible. Everything you do is terrible. I hate you. I hate Ashtanga. Never again and walk away. It's horrible. What can you do? You do everything within your power to make peace. And still they say no. And they reject it. It's very difficult. You have to trust, okay, the students that are here, let me help them. If that one is meant to come back, they'll come back. Can't do it. It's their path. Very difficult. Very, I think it's one of the greatest challenges that a teacher faces is when the student rejects them and rejects the teaching. One of the greatest challenges. You can doubt yourself. Should I be delivering waffles instead? Maybe I should bring waffles to class. You know, maybe they would stay then. Then we lost the teaching. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.